Our next speaker, Tom DeFreston, um, as well as being artistic director for Medicine on Box, is an extraordinary painter. And in his exploration of, of that work, he finds himself in a number of collaborations producing multimedia worlds with painting, painting at the center, most recently a graphic novel of the Orpheus and Eurydice, Eurydice story. Um, anyway, Tom DeFreston. Map, a diagrammatic representation of an area of land or sea showing physical features, a symbolic depiction of a space, be it geographical, real, or imagined. Etymology, mappa mundi, mappa meaning napkin, and mundi the world. So to map is to make a two-dimensional representation of the world. So to paint is to map, but to map what? We presume painting is a direct translation of what is seen, and of course it does this, but it is not just a sub-photographic form of direct recording. It is a translation, not a failed attempt at a copy. It also goes beyond the visible, finding visual forms to articulate non-visual layers of the world, be that narrative, psychological, political, expressing things in metaphor, or even trying to reach metaphysical truths. A painting is a window onto an imagined world, or a mirror of our world, as well as being a physical, flat slab of independent turf, which is to suggest paintings map and contain, much like us, multitudes. These particular paintings uh, were explorations and mappings of trauma of various forms, which means they exist as much in psychological spaces as they do physical space, and that's a far less quantifiable topography. My studio is an abandoned, flood-damaged Victorian squash court in Oxford. An inquisitive four-year-old and her mother popped their heads in whilst I was working and asked if they could have a look around. Pointing to a small sculpture, an almost abstract, mutated, deformed thing, she asked, what is it? It's a central question, and interestingly not what is it of, i.e. what is it representing, but what is it? The life of the work is given autonomy, agency, so I did what all adults do when asked seemingly simple, but in reality complex questions by small children. I asked her one back. <laughs> what do you think it is? <laughs> A sad horse, she said with conviction, before pausing, doubtful, or a forgotten potato? <laughs> it's a comment that grows in significance. It's a course funny, and it suggests proper imaginative looking and thinking. It's a statement which impregnates the object, gives it new life and possibilities. It was also spookily relevant. The sculpture was part of a reimagining of Spencer's Safari Queen, set within the context of his complicit involvement in the genocidal actions of the Elizabethan colonial regime in Ireland at the end of the 16th century. I don't presume she knew all of this. <laughs> Potatoes were said to have first washed ashore the coast of Ireland from the wreckage of the Spanish Armada. As such, they are actually a symbol loaded with rhymes and metaphors of the histories and lives we were exploring in the project. The strange echoes show how meanings formed, not just mapped, but discovered, dug up out of the soil of discourse between viewer and object. So, how is meaning birthed? Where does it live in the art object? If it's a process of discovery, then where does the journey start and where does it end? As Eliot observes in Little Gidding, what we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. 
The end is where we start from. The process of painting is not one of design. It's not a case of having a clear terrain in mind to map. It doesn't allow itself to be so contained, to be so singular. Painting is stepping into terra incognita, of journeying into the dark and mapping things as you find them. The painting process is like a dance, circling around the canvas, responding to each mark, adapting to shifts in possibilities. Paint runs like rivers across the surface, into and out of newly forming tributaries. To watch paint dry is, contrary to popular adage, hypnotic, <laughs> an all-consuming meditative act a letting go of certainty, it is strangely seductive. The world falls away, and to exist in that space is key, because it's where you can drop presumptions, pretensions, and see afresh, like a child or an explorer in a new terrain. It's what Keats called negative capability, existing in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact or reason. It's an emptying of identity and of conscious thought becoming a vessel through which experience freely flows. It is to embrace being lost, because painting is the art of getting lost and not minding. So what did I find in the process of painting? Well, it becomes a swirl of sources, ideas, and possibilities. It sees ideas you were already aware of grow and mutate, and other associations arise as if they have been grasped by the subconscious before the conscious mind was able to articulate them. Or perhaps they're just born emerging out of the process. I started these process, I started these paintings, and to which these at least belong, on the day my father died. I saw his death as the locking of a long closed door. I had a complicated, problematic relationship with him, so I saw his death as a longed-for ending. Yet in the months that followed, it became increasingly clear that he haunted these paintings. There was a form of denial, murder in the depth of complexity and grief, becoming mapped in these paintings. Back to the forgotten potato, because it reminds me of a link between these paintings and my father's death. After he died, I moved into a new house in Oxford with my wife. I had a studio built at the bottom of the garden, and as part of the process, I dug up the lawn, a flood-ridden flood space full of weeds, so that I would have a blank space to start over, to begin afresh. My father was a gardener, so I thought of him often as I worked. Buried deep and wide across half of the garden was bindweed. It presents itself on the surface as a carpet of green leaves, beautiful, trumpet-like white flowers. It swamps and suffocates everything else. Beneath the surface, it constructs an elaborate plumbing network of thick, tough roots. The roots look like life forms, half alive, mandrakes. It took 10 days to remove it all. I laid a new lawn, a few borders and a path leading to the new studio, Smoothed over, everything okay. A year later, the bindweed returned, small shoots tentatively emerging in corners at first, but then the carpet rolled out, the roots had set back in, and suddenly I saw my father's face in the paintings, every character wearing his face, both sprouted from a subterranean space, believed to have been erased but merely buried and festering. And this is often where grief exists, unseen or unspeakable, before finding ways to express itself, to give itself form. These paintings were never intentionally about him. In fact, the opposite was true. They were an attempt to build a world, to create narratives, to provide moments of temporary amnesia and transcendence, which could separate me from the very things they now seemed to mirror. Mirrors, which I thought were windows. A patch of drying paint became, becomes a space of ghosts, a Rorschach test. 
Oil paint split and sails across the surface, congealing varnish breaking through. The corrosive effects of various mediums pushing and pulling at each other. Wounds, rupturing, healing. The mechanics of the paint itself mirroring the way that cancer may spread, blossoming, degrading the body. The paint seeming to sing a humanistic hymn to the fragility and transience of life, seeming to occupy the very threshold space between life and death. And it's a webbed cartography, not just biological, but geographic, a game of echoes and rhymes. The blues of these panels were not the blues of fresh terrain, but had become that of Devon. That final light of the day seen when running along the coast of its seas and skies, the stormed topography of my childhood and my father's dying years. The color of my childhood, it's a lens through what so many of my memories of him were filtered. It's the swirling blues of a favorite marble from childhood found when clearing out his house. As Rebecca Solnit observes, blue is the color of loss. It's the world at its edges and in its depths. It's the light which did not make it to us, scattered out and captured in the sky. It is the color which allows us to optically and psychologically enter depths. The subconscious as light, refracting, scattering, held in the sky of our memory, just beyond reach. Painting was becoming the filtering out of something I could not see, holding it in its deeply pulled surfaces. So what had I thought they were about? The same year my father died, I became obsessed by a painting by Jericho from 1819, The Raft of the Medusa. It seemed to capture much of the energy I was searching for, and it became a magnetic force at the center of a wider constellation of literary and historical sources, both from 1819 and then spreading out backwards and forwards through history, these including Shakespeare's King Lear, Goya's House of the Deaf Man. I wanted to take the raft and this constellation of sources and to explode it, to scatter the broken fragments and to grow a new world from the remains to build a form of history painting and storytelling which might possibly feel relevant today. The raft was not the subject, but the vessel through which I would discover the subject. The image of a raft lost at sea, which would be the central motif, felt like a perfect metaphor for a kaleidoscope of geopolitical and historical things I wanted to tap into. Little did I know that the wreck at sea would become the perfect metaphor for my own psychology. The original hangs in the Louvre, a monumental painting of shipwrecked survivors clinging to a shattered wooden raft in a storm-ridden seascape. 200 years after its creation, the storms of paint may be buried under varnish, but the painting still shocks. It holds, for me, some of the terror and awe inherent in the sea. It's a painting which speaks not just to the specific story it depicts, but today to various political and apocalyptic visions of suffering. The stories, as always, unfold from and around each other. It's 1818, and the painter takes to his studio in Paris, just over the road from the Boujon Hospital. He's recently heard of a raft lost to a storm. He begins by inviting survivors, a geographer and a doctor, to his studio to tell them what he had seen, the horrors they had survived. The geographer and the doctor begin by saying that they were lost, it was clear it was early uh, July 1816, and along with 140 men and one woman, they boarded a hastily built raft to flee the stranded Medusa and were to be dragged by a lifeboat to the safety of the Senegalese port, or so they thought. Within hours, they were cut loose by their captain and their shipmates. The geographer was also an engineer, so he must have seen the future first, the crudely constructed raft, 
barely floating, half submerged by the sheer weight of the newly formed community. And in the coming days, they would be circled by sharks, swear they sighted krakens. But worst of all was the sea itself. Over, over 13 days, it consumes the raft's inhabitants with increasing ferocity. Some die of hunger and thirst and are offered to the sea as a burial rite. Others are swept in by wind and high waves. Still more lose their mind, walking overboard to drown. The raft dwellers belonged to a society that believed it had conquered a mapped and known world. Now they realize how it felt to be lost. 13 days in, in their search for the shipwrecked Medusa, the crew of the Argos stumbled upon the raft, covered with severed limbs, hung out to dry like laundry. The Argos had come hunting for gold, but found flesh. The raft was awash with death, populated by 15 survivors from the original cast of 150. Those remaining were starved physically and psychologically. Locked away in his studio, Jericho looked to immerse himself in this visceral reality of the stories the survivors had told him. His studio was a jumble of body parts, dripping, stinking from the walls and ceilings, the floor stained with blood and carpeted with rotten flesh. My studio was not the same as this. It began to resemble an abattoir, the inevitable infestation of rats, dead and alive, populating the damp, cold timber. It was a strange reincarnation of the raft itself. He made studies of the heads and limbs, all palpably real, the green tinge of flesh drained of its final life, or the browning red of flesh congealing, the human becoming meat. He would borrow heads and limbs from the local hospital to study, spend days painting the same head from multiple angles, watching it degrade in front of his eyes. The results were studies of paint's power to not just depict flesh, but to truly engage with the material reality of life and death. A painter is a cannibal of sorts, or at best a surgeon, prepared to see the human being as something to be dissected, opened up, understood. I wanted to do something similar, just perhaps not with the severed heads, to somehow capture a similar spirit to Jericho, to find a way to inhabit his painting, to reanimate the characters on the raft. Mary, Mary Shelley's Dr. Frankenstein, a contemporary of Jericho, provided a model. What if I could create monstrous, zombified versions of the raft's cast? What if I could literally climb inside their skin or reanimate the dead matter of the painted corpses? I would go on to make, as we will see in a bit, pots of paint and clay mixed together to become a flesh-like substance a second skin covering my entire body and head. It is a performance as process to try and become this half-human golem thing. The film footage and photographs that I took of the performance gave me the basis to create a new cast of characters, all repeats and mutations of the same wriggling figure which would populate a new world. The question would be, what type of world? How would it be mapped? A couple of years before Jericho made the painting, around the time the original scandal had occurred, he was in Rome, obsessing over Michelangelo's work. The raft is, in many ways, a secular reimagining of Michelangelo's Last Judgment. That painting, one which is sat at the heart of the Catholic Church, one which shakes with homoerotic energy, 
It's the apocalypse as an orgiastic, almost pornographic image of suffering, sacrifice, and judgment. As an interesting aside, a number of the studies that Michelangelo sourced for that painting actually had taken a series of erotic drawings by uh, one of his studio partners of men in various sexual cont um, contortions, which strikes me as fascinating that this should sit at the belly of the beast of the Catholic Church, considering its history. That's when I realized that I wanted to make a secularized version of The Last Judgment for the 21st century, or at least try. A fractured, broken, patterning vision of suffering, of a world in crisis. The form of the grid, which we will see, echoing and rhyming with images of drowning, storm-swept, and raft-bound figures, would become the ideal form across which to construct a fractured narrative. The grid is an important signifier of meaning in the history of painting, most notably in its connection to a construction of the illusion of space. But it takes on wider significance, as it's a symbol of idealism, of control, of order, of trying to house and give language to chaos. A case could be made that the entire history of painting, and therefore to some extent a history of how we map and see the world, could be told through a history of the grid and its functions. In the paintings you'll see, there are a set of panels, a shuffleable map, a patterned floor which can be lifted to become a huge, vast, walled mosaic. The 81 panels come together to form a nine-by-nine nine square. Each of these squares gives a vision of a drowned world, the figure mutating across a spectrum from the naturalistic to the almost entirely abstracted forgotten potatoes. It's a shifting, changing, exploding with endless configurations, and I mean endless. The grid can be arranged in more combinations than there are atoms in the universe. It is a living history painting. It's an expression or an attempt at of the impossible, unimaginable scale of repeat suffering through history. The grid of repeating images is designed to come together as a maze-like apocalypse, each space to be entered, inhabited, while also existing within the grid architecture of the whole, giving both micro and macro views of the narrative. The panels riff, remix, and repeat the same marks in images, an almost obsessional preoccupation with variations upon a theme. In Guy Debord's Society of the Spectacle, he notes how overexposure to images of suffering has a damaging consequence of possibly anaesthetizing us. It's a reality which has escalated with the digital revolution. We are overloaded, constantly opening up Indo opening up internet windows onto a world in crisis. The repeating forms of the grid are an attempt, at least, to map, to articulate this form of trauma, this cancellation, this numbing of feeling, to try and create a temporal space and narrative which is non-linear in form, a kind of liminal nowhere, a map which is an antithesis of a traditional map, locating gaps and experiences which don't quite exist. So, to conclude, what can paintings map? What is the metaphysical geography of contemporary existence? Are we really citizens of nowhere? Borges wrote that beautiful allegory of a map so detailed that it was a one-to-one -one scale, so it covered the empire entirely. But what if Baudrillard's nightmare becomes true? And that map, the abstract model of reality, suffocates and takes over reality itself, becomes not a representation of a world, but starts to shape, to form it. Are we living in the desert of the real? versus the imagined? In a post-digital, post-internet age, virtual spaces have become far less, than, far 
more than the means through which we mediate the world. They've become the territory of existence and reality itself. Technology simultaneously makes the world smaller than ever, all of its inhabitants more connected than ever, but at the same time more alienated and disconnected. It's a world where algorithms, social media echo chambers, and big data are weaponized to radically invert the relationship between truth and fiction. This is more than a post-structural hypothetical worry. This is a very real world manipulation of the social, economic, and political landscape. It is a world in which expertise, truth, and complexity are dismissed for simple, emotionally driven narratives or lies. And it works because we want to live in an illusion of the reality, because it's easier to think we know where we are. It makes us feel safe, but we should fight for exploration and accept being lost and uncertain. A painting presents itself as singular, as everything being visible. We tend to think it has clarity and certainty. In reality, it's a medium like poetry of uncertainty, which is why stories and storytellers are important. We need to win back the narratives to articulate complex situations of clarity and conviction, to show why it matters, to connect emotionally, to grow and spread empathy and fight binary, populist, divisive models. A painting is a wound, a rupture to the presumption of narrative as a linear and rhythmic. In reality, narratives have moments of vertiginous depth, where time and space open up. And this is particularly true of moments of trauma, be it personal, geopolitical, literary, or transhistorical. They are the moments where the singular suddenly takes on a scale, a spaciousness, and a multiplicity which seems impossible. It's a moment of chaotic grandeur, punctuating the gridi gridded order of a life. Painting is a storytelling medium which can present a singularity which is capable of containing these lives. No moment is singular. We are never just here or never just now. And painting can try and articulate this. It maps the shattered spaces and temporal complexities of psychology and history. It maps multitudes. <laughs>